What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Have you ever read a book that spoke to you? Have you ever read a book that changed your life for the better? Have you ever read a book with a character just like you? Have you ever gone through a difficult time and a book gave you the help or support you needed? Have you ever read a book that was so powerful that you just had to stay up all night to finish it? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you have found that elusive yet magical connection with the written word. My own connection came when I finished the last of Lloyd Alexander's The Pridane Chronicles as a 14-year-old. I remember that moment of loss when I finished the last word, knowing there would be no more. I also remember, however, the great sense of empowerment I felt in knowing that evil could be conquered and that even the most humble pig boy could make a difference. I faced many struggles as a child, and this sense of empowerment was just what I needed to make me stronger and to help me face the real world with a sense of my own ability to overcome negative situations. This experience is one of my defining moments that made me love books and reading. I am a lifelong reader now because of this and other defining experiences. Chances are good that if you are a reader, or if you know any readers, that they have had one of these kinds of defining experiences that made them into a reader. It really is these kinds of experiences that make readers. So as a library professional, I work to see that the individuals I interact with have the right environment surrounding them in order for them to have their own positive defining reading experiences with books. Looking at this from a broader context, the lesson is that if we wish to create lifelong, passionate readers, then we must develop, teach, and engage in positive experiences with books. Each reader must find a book that he or she connects with. Anyone can be a reader, and those who are not readers just have not found the right book yet. So here at Rachel's World, we send out a call to all concerned adults to take some time to help the children in their lives find the right book so that they, too, can start on the path to becoming lifelong readers. Experts say it's vital that we allow children to choose what they want to read, but also to extend a wise and guiding hand. Young adult literature expert Terry Lassane shares tips on how to guide our children to books that suit them. Obviously, her aim is to help them become independent, lifelong readers. Lassane teaches classes in children's and young adult literature in the Department of Library Science at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. She is author of professional books and numerous articles in her field and has served on the selection committees of the National Book Award, the Walden Award, and the Prince Award. Terry Lassane is also author of Reading Letters. Here's Rachel and Terry. We're speaking with Terry today. Welcome, Terry. 
Hi, uh, glad to be joining you. I am just honored to speak with you today. I am very familiar with all your work and all of the wonderful contributions you've made to the field of children's literature, young adult literature, and literacy. And I am excited to share you with my listening audience here on this show. So let's start a little bit bit kind of at the beginning. Young adult literature as it stands really is a relatively new kind of conception of a grouping of literature. So how would you define young adult literature, particularly in this kind of modern age? What would be your definition? Well, it, it, we used to say they were books written for young adults and read by young adults, which was a pretty big Uh, broad definition, and I I don't want to narrow it too much, but what I have seen is that young adult has kind of broken off a little into chunks, and so we have what I call true young adult books, uh, and then you've got uh, middle grade books, which are the fourth, fifth grade, that younger end of YA, and then you've got those middle school books, um, the, the just coming into teenage years books. All of those at one point were called YA, but now uh, marketing especially has started saying we need some new terms for this. And we now have new adult, um, which is young adult books for beyond high school, for college and, and, you know, people in their early 20s, let's say. So you've got, I mean, that's a wide range when you think about books for fourth grade and books for a 22-year-old. Oh, my goodness. So... I'm, I'm kind of cautious sometimes about trying to say, here is YA. I still kind of like it's the books they'll read um, because sometimes that's adult books. Um, and sometimes it's books that maybe we wouldn't call young adult, but they still kind of love them. I always think when I was teaching middle school, um, when a new um, James Howell book in the Benicula series would come out, the audience for that book was definitely third, fourth, fifth grade. But my eighth graders would go, oh, could we have one, please? Would you buy one to put in the library? Because we just love those stories. And so here were, you know, 13, 14-year-olds. Nobody would identify them as the market, and yet they were. That is so interesting to me because I think one of the things that I see particularly in young adult literature today is this kind of sense of there really are no boundaries anymore. And it really is about what's right for the reader at the right time and being able to find that connection is an important part of what we do as adults in children's lives. Do you do you agree with that? Absolutely. It's finding you know, it's, uh, I think my friend Kylene Beers calls them the Goldilocks books, not too big, not too small, just right. Um, and I kind of like that analogy, uh, you know, but we let kids kind of test out. Will this be okay? Yeah, it's not quite right. And, and help them find that just right book. But eventually, they have to be able to do that on their own. Uh, they're not going to have us, uh, and by us I mean teachers or parents or librarians, uh, around when they go to Barnes & Noble. Uh, so they need to learn how to find those just right books for themselves eventually. That, I think, is one of the things that I like to help people understand is this sense of how do we help our children develop those behaviors that allow them to pick their own books and to be kind of independent, lifelong readers. What kind of tips do you have along those lines? Well, choice factors in uh, hugely here. Um, you know, when they're little, they'll choose the same book every single night to be read. 
you know, we've all experienced that. Those of us who've raised children uh, have had, you know, I want that one again. My husband, I think, can still recite The Very Hungry Caterpillar by heart. And our youngest is now 23. So, you know, but she wanted that every single night. And eventually it came to, you have a choice. Here are three or four or five books. You start small. Which one of these now? Uh, and then you try to broaden those choices and maybe even throw one in that pushes. I hate that word push, but it does push them just a little. So it's just trying to make those connections and show kids how books are connected. Because as adults, you and I, you know, we read and we go, oh, this reminds me of, or I know a great book to recommend with this one. To kids, that doesn't come naturally. That's something they have to kind of acquire, and we can help, I think, with that. I love that sense of connectedness, because I think books are often more connected than sometimes we give them credit for. So what are some of the connections that you see in in some of your favorite young adult books today? Wow. Um, I don't think I can read... Um, I see the chocolate war everywhere. I go back to some of those um, early young adult books that sometimes I think people leave behind. And the chocolate war by Cormier will always be an important book for me um, and a book that I use in my uh, young adult literature courses because I think it's something they need to know because we don't get to John Green if we don't have Bob Cormier first. And we don't get to Chris Lynch unless we have Bob Cormier first. Uh, We don't get to... Um, the new books about LGBT issues, unless we've read Nancy Garden and Emmy Kerr, uh, kind of their forebears, if you will. So I, as I'm reading, I'm always trying to think, so what does this remind me of? If it's great, good humor, can I connect a kid to uh, some of the Paul Zindel uh, books from the past? And then can I bring them up to Gordon Corman? And can I connect them to David Lubar? So, It's not quite genre. It's not quite scene. Sometimes it's just the response that it evokes or a particular setting that makes me think of another book. Um, And I I try to talk to kids about this, too, that if you like this one, and, of course, we have lots of lists that are generated online. If you like Harry Potter, you might also like. Um, So I think it's trying to find those kinds of resources, but also to ask kids, What is it you like about this book? Because maybe in Harry Potter, it's the fact that he is shuttled off under the staircase and he comes into his own. Maybe that's what they like. Maybe it's the magic. Maybe it's the school. Maybe it's the friendship. That allows us to go in different directions. I think that that is a really unique insight that I think my listeners are going to love because sometimes I think we just try to match genre to genre, but it really goes deeper than that. It goes to theme, it goes to setting, it goes to character. And so really connecting to those very specific issues is the kind of thing that's going to help match children to the right books to kind of take them to to the next step of their reading. So how do we do that? How do we how do we understand for ourselves what those matching points are? And then how do we figure out what books will fit within those matching points? Well, um, the first thing we do is we read. Uh, We read very widely. Um, People will say, "Oh, oh, look, here's the eighth book in the series. And I'm always thinking, I can't do that. I can't read eight books. I will read, well, 
I shouldn't say that. I read all the Harry Potter books. There's, there, are <laughs> there are certain eight books that you should read. Yeah. Cross. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, spirit animals, I, I read two or three of them. I got it. I know what this is about. Um, and so I can move on from, from that. So I try to read as widely as I can. And for me, it's a real challenge sometimes to read outside of uh, the comfort zone is what we call it. Um, so I try to do that, um, you know, with anyone. Uh, I get approached online by teachers. I need a good book for sixth grade boys. And my response to them is always, tell me about these kids. What have they read? What did they like? What are their interests? Uh, the more information I have, the better I am able to kind of help match kids. Um, and then, you know, again, for parents, it's trying to read as, as widely as they can as well uh, to go beyond that, that first display when you walk into Barnes & Noble that says, you know, here are the bestsellers. Uh, that's a great place to start. But, you know, in my store, it's go upstairs and see what else is there because uh, there might be some new stuff. I, I love that sense of just diving in and exploring. So let's help our listeners maybe explore some of that new stuff that, that you think is just great. So what are some things that you've read lately that uh, you'd recommend to a broad audience that you think might be ones they should check out? One of the things that I think I, I've enjoyed seeing so much, and um, it's a growing trend, is the field of nonfiction and how nonfiction has progressed from the kind of books that I read to the kinds of nonfiction that are available now, um, the explosion of narrative nonfiction, um, the graphic novel form of nonfiction, and then you've got expository kind of texts that have all kinds of brilliant illustrations that give links to go online. Um, And so uh, one of the books that's... um, just sitting in my memory, which will come out February. It's called Loving versus Virginia. And it is, um, it's the story of the couple that challenged the interracial marriage regulation, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, but it's, an, it's a documentary novel in verse, um, which just defies imagination when you think about it. Um, I have to put in a plug for Chris Crow's um, Death Coming Up the Hill, a novel in haiku about the war in Vietnam. I mean, oh my goodness. It just, it, it, it absolutely confounds me uh, how someone could have thought that, and yet it works, it works brilliantly. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Terry. Well, thank you. I always love to talk about my favorite thing in the world. Young adult book expert Terry Lassane talking about helping our children become lifelong readers Next, Rachel welcomes Brad Wilcox, a professor in the Department of Teacher Education at BYU, who discusses how literacy, across a broad spectrum from books and movies to comics and even cereal boxes, can expand our children's world, literally taking them to faraway places without leaving home. He also talks about encouraging our children to write and helping them to understand the difference between private and public writing. Wilcox has lived in Utah, Ethiopia, and Chile, serving as an advocate for children and learning wherever he has gone. Here's Rachel and Brad. We welcome Brad Wilcox into the studio today. Great to be here. 
I understand you grew up in Ethiopia. I think that's wonderful. And some children aren't as lucky to have that kind of diverse experience, uh, particularly at a formative part of their childhood. But one of the things that literacy can do is it can open that kind of worldview, a more global worldview uh, for children. I've noticed that, Rachel. I've noticed that everywhere. We've lived for a time in New Zealand. Our families lived for a time in Spain, and our family lived for three years in Chile. And so I noticed that in these countries where travel opportunities are not available to many children, they do expand their world through literacy. They expand their world through books, and they expand their world through visual literacies, but the magic of literacy is that it can give children a bigger picture. The more we can expose kids to books, the more they'll be able to start creating their own bigger pictures. If they have only read one book, then they only have one view of that particular part of the world or that particular situation. But if they have lots of books, then they're able to start seeing the commonalities and the differences as we expose them to the world. So I think it's like an art museum. If a child only sees one piece of art, then he is very limited in his view of the world. It does give him a window to the world, but it's one little window. And if he sees lots of pieces of art, then he has many windows through which to see the world and through which to make sense of the world. And books become windows to the world. We need to be careful as parents that we don't just see books as mirrors through which kids can see their own culture reflected back. We want them to be windows. And if kids see differences, if they see diversity, if they see the way that other people live that may not match the way they live, then we're giving kids the same experience that I had growing up in Africa. Now, we might not be able to plunk every kid down in the middle of Addis Ababa, but we can give him a book. And through that book, he can learn to be sensitive, he can learn to understand differences, and he can learn to be better for the differences that surround him. Yeah, I know in talking to parents often that can be kind of a disconnect for them because they look at a book and they think, oh, that's a window. It's going to give my child an experience that I don't necessarily want them to have. But for me, one of the things that I say to parents is, yes, it may give them that window, but it's not going to be a a window that they go through themselves. It's it can be a discussion between you and the child and to say, okay, how do you think about that? How does this integrate into your own worldview? And when we take that step and say, this isn't just a consuming thing that the child is doing, this is going to be an interactive thing. It helps us to open a broader world for our children in a very unique way. I think a book that did that in our family was Devil's Arithmetic. Wonderful book. I love the book, but it's dealing with the Holocaust. And, you know, for young children, sometimes you want to protect them from that. Sometimes you think, I don't want them to be exposed to that. But that children's book allows for enough of exposure, enough exposure for them to realize what happened and to realize the the grief associated with that, the pain associated with that, the unfairness associated with that, the abuse associated with that. 
but perhaps not as graphically as maybe movies that are made for adults or books that are written for adults. And so I love the fact that the author wrote that with children in mind because it became a window through which my children could see this horrific piece of history and they could mourn, but it wasn't so graphic that it terrified them and had them crawling under their beds at night. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about authors of children's literature. They try very hard to make it developmentally appropriate, and they really work to make it something that that children can see through their own point of view and to connect to it in a very fundamental and emotional way. And I think there's that really interesting balance that we have to approach because not every book is going to be appropriate for every child in every situation. And so I think we need to look more holistically at those types of things, that there may be a book that's appropriate for a child of a certain uh, age at a certain time in their life, but for another child of that same age, that book may not be appropriate. And it's the same thing with writing. We've been talking about reading, but it's the same thing with writing. I always tell kids there's a public time and there's a private time. And if a kid gets up to share something in a class and he starts going on and on about his parents' divorce or something, then I say, that's private writing. And if a kid gets up to and he starts talking about and then his head got chopped off and then his legs got chopped off, I say, that's private writing. You want to write that? Write that in private. Uh, but when you're right, when you're sharing your writing in public, then you need to be sensitive that there are other people who may not want to be reading that or may not want to be listening to that. And I think that public private is a nice distinction because then we're not saying good or bad or right or wrong. Um, but we're just saying there are things that can be done in a private journal, things that can be written about in a private journal that we may not want to share with everyone. Yeah, and I think particularly in today's society where communications are so open and we communicate in such unique ways that understanding that difference is even more important as kids grow and as they learn to communicate with social media and these other kinds of contexts, they understand that difference, that can be really important for that growth as well. I always tell kids that it's the same difference when they're deciding whether they're going to worry about the spelling of a word. Well, is this private? Then do your best. Get it out. Who cares how it's spelled? Is this a rough draft? Is this in your journal? No one's going to care. But is this public writing? Are you writing to the principal? Are you writing to an audience? Well, then they care. And you better make sure that we edit through this and revise it so that it's ready for a public audience. Um, and I think that as kids can make that distinction in their mind of public versus private, it makes a big difference. It certainly does. How do you think parents particularly in the home can help kids understand that difference? I always talk about kids getting dressed. I always say that writing is like getting dressed in the morning. You start by putting on your underwear. But then I say to the kids, do we go outside in our underwear? And they say, no. One kid said, well, my dad does. (laughs) (laughs) But I tell them that most people don't go outside in their underwear. But that's how you start. But then you've got to finish getting dressed to go out in public. And I think that that distinction of just getting dressed, we wear our pajamas around the house. 
but we don't always wear our pajamas out in public. And we can say that when we're riding, there's some riding that's in its underwear. There's some riding that's in its pajamas. And we don't share that yet. We get help getting that ready so that it's dressed up and ready to go out in public. That's a really important distinction, I think, especially with that help. So how can parents help their kids dress up their riding from getting it out of their underwear? (laughs) Well, I think one thing is to remember, is this for an audience or is it just for the kids? Is it just for you? If they've written you a love note, don't edit it. Don't say, oh, that's not how you spell love. Just accept the message. But if they're writing something that's going to be for a bigger audience than just you or just the family or just the fridge, a little hanging it on the fridge, if they're writing it for a bigger audience, that's when we step in and say, let's worry about the spelling. And I think that's really important, that backing off, too, because I think sometimes we look at children and we think, oh, we need to perfect this. We need to get this right. We need to do this really well. And we forget that sometimes kids just need to play, essentially, with words and language and spelling. and and that Or even scribbling. Exactly. They scribble and they say, look, I wrote a check just like you. Or look look, I'm writing in cursive. And they're just scribbling. But that's developmentally appropriate. And so we don't say to a little baby, when the baby goes, mama, we don't say, no, it's mother. Mother. (laughs) Now you get it right. We don't do that. We, We just say, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. And we need to be a little more quick to praise those early attempts in written words and in vocabulary development. We need to praise those attempts and praise the development rather than expecting everything to be conventional right off the bat. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time today, Brad. Thank you. Literacy expert and professor of education at BYU, Brad Wilcox, discussing how literacy can expand a child's world. We finish up the show today with teachers from Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah, sharing what they do in their classroom, not only to encourage students to read, but to help them to find joy in reading. How do you implement reading in a classroom setting? I have read-alouds every day with my students. I pick some of my favorite authors to read and share with them, and I love to see their excitement. When we have library, they go right towards the author section. We pause in our read-alouds and talk about the book and really apply it to our lives and to things that happen in a third grader's everyday life. And so they can continue to read at home and at school and think, how does this apply in my life? Or when have I seen this before? And it continues to help them want to read. One thing we do is book club circles. The kids are assigned books of high interest and we have assignments assigned to their reading and analyzing the text and different assignments like that. But the kids really get to sit around and discuss elements of plot and elements of character development and really get into their books. Why is it important for kids to think reading is fun at a young age? Reading is fun at no matter what age you are, especially at a young age. It's habit and it's something they're going to carry with them through their whole life. At a young age, they go from learning to read to reading to learn, and you're a lifelong learner, and so reading is a fun way to continue to learn. Mostly, I think, just to build literacy to build a way to interpret the world. So they are building the tools, the pieces they need to walk through the world as a citizen and to contribute to the world around them through literacy. What advice do you have for kids who don't think reading is very fun? 
I would say pick a genre that you are interested in already. So if you love bugs and creepy crawlies, find science books. If you love make-believe fairy tales, you know, find those types of books that you are already interested in and then start there and then continue to read your favorites and then expand the genres. I would say go pick up Lewis Sacker's Wayside School is Falling Down. And if you don't think it's funny to read about a little kid falling out a window and climbing up the ponytails of another little girl, then nothing will be funny for the rest of your life. What is your favorite book and why? My favorite book is The Book Thief by Marcus Susak, and I love that it's written in a different perspective. It's written by the character Death, and so it's not a person and it's not a place necessarily. It's an abstract narrator through the story, and I love the story that he tells of trial and of human hope and love. My favorite adulthood book is probably Barbara Kingsolver. She wrote The Poisonwood Bible, and that's probably my favorite book because... She writes every chapter from somehow manages to capture the vantage point of four daughters of varying ages and manages to do it very well. So I've always loved that book. Teachers from the Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah, sharing ways they encourage their students to read. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.